0: Podcast. We hope you learn why you're here. Here is your host
1: Jay Michael. Welcome back to illuminate the Shadowlands Podcast. I am known online as the Christian Nomad. You can find me on Twitter at Nomad Christian. I am your host Jay Michael. I am here with Reverend Stephanie Clark all the way from South Africa. Thank you for joining us and We have a tremendous show lined up for you, and we are going to start it off by introducing Reverend Stephanie Clark, because she was introduced to me by a friend online as the Irreverent Reverend, which is great for me because that was kind of my title for a minute. Her bio says she can bust through taboos with humor and help people get free of guilt, shame, and fear. She has been exposing the religious mythology on sexuality so that people can have a more pleasurable sex. She has had 10 years of study at Agape in Los Angeles as a metaphysical minister under Reverend Michael Beckwith of The Secret fame. She successfully started the first multiracial New Thought ministry in South Africa. She wrote an autobiography called The Misadventures of an Irreverent Reverend, a spirited guide for rebels and renegades. Her most recent work is titled The Sex Goddess, Debunking the Mythology of God and Sex, which is available on Kindle. And she co-facilitated the opening ceremony for women at the Parliament of the World's Religions on November 1st, and she spoke on two multi-faith panels at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Toronto, Canada, this November. Joining us all the way from South Africa is Reverend Stephanie Clark. Please, everybody, welcome her. Reverend Clark, uh, I understand that you, it is your common practice to start with a prayer, so I turn the floor over to you.
0: Thank you, Jane. and thanks for inviting me on the show. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to invite the people who are watching or listening to uh, close your eyes if that's comfortable for you, and if not, that's fine. I'd like to just do a, a little prayer to set the tone for our interview. <clears throat> So we're turning aside now from the external circumstances and everything that we were focusing on before coming to this particular interview. And I know that there is only one power, one presence, one life, one energy, and some people call that God. And I am that, and so too is Jay, and so too is is everyone within the sound of my voice, knowing that we have been brought together this day by divine appointment, that everything has been pre-orchestrated in order that we might go deeper in our awareness of truth, of love, of spirit, of sex, and of the mythology that has governed our thinking around from the Bible. So I'm declaring that this interview is God speaking to God and God listening to God. This interview is a magnificent opening in consciousness and a way for truth to be revealed and for life to be lived more expansively. I know that Jay has the perfect questions and I have the perfect answers. We are joined in consciousness and everything that comes forth is a blessing to everyone who is involved in this show. So I do give thanks for the perfection of this interview. I give thanks for the perfect outcome also. And I release my word into law, and I allow it to be. And so it is. Amen.
1: Amen. Okay, and with that, because we uh, literally have only had a few words before, I always like to give my guests the floor to go back to the very beginning and just tell me what started you on the path, or what was your first introduction to, say, religion, or whichever sex, whichever part spawned which. And what started you on your journey that has led you to where you are today?
0: Okay, thank you. Um, So you can probably hear from my accent that I wasn't born in America. I was Uh born in London, in Great Britain. Uh And uh, I come from a typical middle-class family, um, alcoholic, dysfunctional. Uh And so growing up was hard work and Mm -hmm. um, very challenging. And um, we didn't have much religious input in my family, my Maybe we went to church at Christmas sometimes or for weddings or christenings, but there was no expectation that we should go to church on a Sunday. And we had neighbors next door. They were the ultimate churchgoers. They would sing in the choir and ring the bells on a Sunday morning and make jam for the church fete. And my family and I judged them as wimps. We thought they were really, like, not stupid people, but very um, what's the word, dependent upon their church and upon their religion. Like they weren't free-thinking, independent people. And so I never aspired to be a person who would be going to church. That was that the role model from my childhood, from the neighbours, was not at all interesting or attractive to me. Um, but in my teens, I started questioning. And in my late teens, I, I was definitely exploring a spiritual path that had nothing to do with any kind of religion that I had been exposed to in my childhood. I... I went to Amsterdam when I was eighteen, and um I observed how the free thinking in Amsterdam and I really liked it um and uh then I went to university and I met a man who was uh, Catholic but really really very very spiritually developed and I knew I wanted that I wanted spiritual development it wasn't about religion at all um He and I had a profound sexual relationship, so just as I was opening up spiritually, I was opening up. Sexually as well, which is um, you know perfect choice of words. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. I so I always wanted to know why why in our in the institutions of organized religion that people typically do not talk about sex, they don't address it, and it's a primal creative force, and it's something that affects everybody. Whether you like whether you're celibate or not, whether you're sexually active or not, you're still impacted by the whole arena of sex. And so why was that? And I also started to question quite recently, actually, it was last year. um, I was listening to the radio in the car and I heard that within a day, four women had been raped in the Soweto Township. And I thought, what is it that men think that they can just abuse and use women's bodies? Where did they get this notion from? And so uh, the, the other part of me is also, as you might have imagined, from reading my books, very rebellious, and I don't like uh, I don't like subjecting myself to any kind of authority. I like to be someone who thinks for myself. So, yeah, that's where the the book on God and sex really started. Plus I um, last year also in August, I was invited to speak on God and sex at a conference called Birthing Our Divine Feminine. And Reverend Michael Beckwith was there from Agape, Lisa Nichols from The Secret. And I was speaking on God and sex, and the audience loved my talk. Uh And afterwards, there was a rush to the bookstore. Everyone wanted the book on God and sex, and it hadn't been written then. (laughs) So I wrote it in the past year. And um, so that's what your uh, friend Pastor Charlie found, I think. And um, so now what's important to me is speaking about this more and more, because I want to literally take the covers off, take the covers off and expose – the mythology that has governed our thinking and caused us to be very guilt feel have guilty feelings about sex, shameful feelings about sex and um, and engage in sexual activity in a way that's often not particularly healthy or uh, life expansive or life enhancing. and I believe sex is meant to be a gift, literally a gift from God and that's something we're supposed to enjoy. Mm-hmm. and the Bible and religion has done a, a real strong number on our heads and caused us to have a very warped relationship with sex and sexuality.
1: Right. And so that takes us the part with, there's a gap kind of between after you're, you kind of started opening and flowering into this idea, our post-college, college area until the last year or so. And I even noticed there, like on Amazon, you had something released in like 2012, I think is, Mm -hmm. is a release. Um, During that time, what was it that, uh, what were you doing? What was had Had you been evolving? Had you been changing? Or have you kind of had the mindset you have now? And you were just trying to figure out how to apply it.
0: Oh, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think where I am now is um much freer than I ever was before, uh, because I did study um at agarpi with Reverend Michael Beckwith, as you mentioned in the introduction and when was that and oh sorry, yeah, I should tell you so. So quick, quick, quick summary of my life, so I finished um, university in I was 23, I went to Amsterdam, I worked in Amsterdam for a few years, uh-huh. and then uh, my mum emigrated to South Africa, and I went to see her, and that's where I discovered what was then called the Church of Religious Science. And Within, within a few months I got my call to ministry, but I completely ignored it and I got engaged. And I got engaged to a man just like my dad who was violent and alcoholic. So I got disengaged quite quickly after he hit me. Um, right. and then the quarter ministry came again and so I finally took that leap. I had to go to America to study because there were no um, there were no schools in South Africa at that time.
1: Right. That music means we have a break coming up, and so we will yeah. talk about your time talk with michael beckwith and your time in los angeles at agape on the other side of this break you can get a hold of her at timelesstransitions.net or on facebook at rev stephanie clark rev stephanie clark on facebook stay tuned And we're back on Illuminate, the Shadowlands podcast. I am the Christian Nomad, J. Michael. You can find me at Nomad Christian on Twitter. And you can find our guest, Reverend, Reverend Stephanie Clark, at on Facebook at Rev Stephanie Clark, And also TimelessTransitions.net. That is TimelessTransitions.net. Make sure you do .net. The last time I had a guest, you guys kept saying .com and it wasn't. It was .net also. So .net. Remember that. Okay, so we were just getting into that time where you'd said you'd gotten married and unfortunately it was a bad it was a bad marriage because you know it was abusive and whatnot. And then you felt you received the call you needed to come to America because I don't know if it's land of opportunity or we just got <laughs> the West Coast is the West Coast, but you found yourself in Los Angeles uh, with uh Reverend Michael Be- Beckwith at Agape. And so, again, just kind of start there and how that experience worked with you, because I'm sure everybody listening has either at least heard of who Beckwith is. And so, sort of how, maybe how that modified your thinking or helped your thinking or, you know, how that made your transition to now happen.
0: Yeah, so the reason that I um, really... Opened up to studying for the ministry. I, I loved living in South Africa, and i i loved I loved being part of the church community there. I didn't really necessarily want to go to America, but it was the only option I had to study as a new thought minister because there were no schools in South Africa. Um, and the first school I went to was the Santa Anita School in Arcadia, mm-hmm. and I graduated through that school uh, after three years. And then um, in that time. All my fellow students said, "Stephanie, you've got to meet Reverend Michael Beckwith." I hadn't heard of him at that time. We're talking um, 1989. He wasn't mm. world famous at that point, right? But they said you've got to meet him, and I didn't really understand why. But they they knew I had a vision for a multiracial ministry in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And at the time when I had this vision, it was like 1987, and so we was, uh, yeah, 1987. We were still in the grips of apartheid in South Africa at that time. Right. So it would have actually been legal for me to start a multiracial church. Plus, I wasn't trained. I didn't have the ministerial license. But the vision at that time, interestingly, was not possible at that time. It wasn't possible to implement it at that time. Mm-hmm. So I went to America, studied, met Reverend Michael Beckwith. As soon as I walked into his agape center, I thought, wow, this is it. I saw black and white together, colored, Hispanic, Asian, an uh, entire mix of humanity And all functioning as one, like holding hands, singing, clapping, praying. There was no sense of separation or uh, as in South Africa, it's a clear dividing line based on the color of one's skin. So um, I knew that because Reverend Michael had established that kind of ministry in America, that it was he had set the precedent and it was Uh possible for me to do the same thing in South Africa. So. He, Michael really inspired me. He really let me know, without ever saying anything, just by demonstrating what he had created at Agape, that it was going to be possible. Um, So that was really important to me to get that image. And then the other thing that happened, I think, is uh, 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 being raised in a Christian culture, even though I wasn't a Christian or wasn't religious, I definitely grew up with the idea that God was this big man outside of myself and Mm -hmm. that um, I had to be a good girl, otherwise I was going to be punished. And even though we weren't religious, I still inherited all of this religious baggage just from being a part of that Northern European Christian culture.
1: Well, honestly, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think a lot of that in England comes from uh, the structure of the government and still having kind of a sitting monarchy. I kind of feel like there's a lot more layers of, government there and so people tend to feel sort of if you ever notice in a lot of places people will kind of relate god to how they relate to the government like people who are comfortable with a lot of government are like oh god's here to just wrap me in a warm blanket and people who don't like it are like well god's mad at me he <laughs> yeah. doesn't let me do uh, yeah. anything so i do think there's because i've i have a few friends from the uk and based upon their mindset they tend to feel about the government. So. I do think Europe still has that because of the monoclonal system still being very present. And even though it's a a queen sitting, it is still very much in the same system that's been around for 600 years, you know, but I just, I just wanted to throw that out, but I do think there's a reason I think that's ingrained deep in you from, you know, childhood all the way up through your nurture. So that is something I, I definitely understand, you know, you having to deal with (coughs) as a thing. So you know, in that case, and believe mm-hmm. me, I'm very politics aside, I tend to be like one of these people to say, leave me alone when it comes to pretty much everything. So, so Yeah, I I I am so far with your story I'm tracking. I'm tracking with you on on the uh the feeling the need for freedom. But um okay, I'm sorry, go ahead. Where you were uh No, oh, thank you for that,
0: sharing what you shared. I would um <laughs> Yeah, I I agree with you because that was very clear to me when I went to America, how free-thinking the people were. Well, particularly in California, of course, maybe more free-thinking as a rule than on the East Coast. But yeah, so I I guess I was trapped in my my British culture and looking to an authority outside of myself. So even though I became a student of new thought and I was training to be a minister of new thought – that baggage of the outer outer authority, that notion of the outer authority didn't leave me very quickly. So I I realized it was a long time into my training that I still somehow, there was a part of me that wanted someone else to tell me how it was and what to do. Like I wanted the truth to come from outside of myself. Right. And I think in doing this research uh, for the My God and Sex book, and beginning to understand the overlay of the patriarchal mythology on, on our religious um, culture and our religious upbringing, I've set myself free from that notion that there's a male God, an authority figure outside of myself that's going to determine my life, determine my existence, and the one who's going to victimize me and um, punish me, reward me based on my behavior, all of that. The old notions have really fallen away to a large extent just from doing this research and from understanding that um, there was a time before the patriarchal mythology came into expression when people worship the goddess. So I've gotten away from that notion of God as male and that's really been so helpful to me.
1: Okay. Um well I'm gonna come back to I'm not gonna do now, but I'm gonna come back circle around to that concept of um the goddess and everything like that later on. But yeah. at this point um so we'll move forward in time and we'll look more towards you know the 2000s and and what kind of led to your first coming on the scene as being somebody who said okay i'm i'm actually going to write or be an author because it's one thing to be a speaker or to kind of make waves it's another thing to put your thoughts on paper and in print because now they're permanent sorry
0: jay i've missed that whole question can you repeat uh, You said- i just what? Yeah,
1: What brought you into uh, it the 2000s and what brought you into being yeah. an author? Because once you put your opinions on paper, they're kind of, they're set and they can be used against you, especially. So you have to really be sure of what you're doing. So what what brought you to that uh-huh. point?
0: Well, thank you for asking. Well, uh, when I was seven, my I was staying with my auntie over the summer holidays and she gave me a typewriter to play with. <laughs> okay. I was away. That was it. I was writing to everybody I knew, um, even though I had nothing to say. <laughs> right. And my, I was seven. My friends, my, my friends were playing outside in the paddling pool, and I didn't want to play. I just wanted to sit at that typewriter. And I, I've always loved to write. Uh-huh. Um, and, but, but writing a book was never something I considered, and that's because, um, again, my upbringing Um, writers or artists were considered people on the fringe people who couldn't support themselves people who couldn't earn a proper living and so my parents being the parents that they were like most parents they wanted to make sure that their child was going to be secure so it was all about going to university and then coming out of that and getting a good secure job that was the old way of thinking it's not that way at all anymore but so being an artist and being a writer didn't even cross the screen of awareness in those days. And But honestly, I didn't really want it either. At the time I was studying languages and I had this vision of traveling around the world as an interpreter or translator. So writing wasn't really in my focus. But then at Agape, I think I started writing for the magazine and um, when I got sober, I was invited to write for the Science of Mind magazine. And so my first article, uh, came out when I was nine months sober. That was about 1993. And that was the beginning of realising that actually I had something to say and it, that it could be published and that if I could have an article published then also a book could be published too. So that there was a turning point there just getting that article published on an in, in an international magazine. And then long ago I had a vision for uh, writing my autobiography in a way where I would use a Bible verse as an example of a moral lesson, or like a parable, and then then share a parable from my own life about how that Bible verse um, was how that Bible verse uh, was experienced by me in my own life. And um, so that's how that was the format that I used for the misadventures of the irreverent reverend. And so when I learned about the metaphysical interpretation of the Bible, it really set me free as well to understand that the Bible is about.
1: And with that, we will see you on the other side of this break. And we're back on Illuminate, the Shadowlands podcast. I am Jay Michael, and we're here with Reverend Stephanie Clark all the way from the other side of the world down there in South Africa. You can get a hold of her at TimelessTransitions.net or on Facebook at Rev. Stephanie Clark. Rev. Stephanie Clark on Facebook. Uh, We were just finishing up the moving into and getting past your autobiography the misadventures of an irreverent reverend a spirited guide for rebels and renegades and so i would like to you know get more into your writing and what you've done and so we're going to go back and say about your first book and what what you think um what brought it how it came about and what the reception was
0: Okay. Um, So uh, the idea for this uh, book in this particular format, I had that um, probably in the 90s. And then in um, 2010, I happened to hear a podcast, which probably changed my life. It was an interview with the author Donna uh, Kozik. And she offered a program called Write Your Book in a Weekend. Mm. And I signed up for the course. And Um, we started on Friday night, and we went through Saturday and Sunday and she, she was a really good teacher. Um, and I didn't get my book done in that weekend, but I got a third of the way through Right. and I realized if I write two more thirds, I've got a book. Mm -hmm. So each piece of the writing in the early days was all about crashing through my own sense of limited beliefs about who I am as a. As a potential writer, I didn't believe that I could really write a book because there's so many people say, I want to write a book and they don't. Yep. Um, and, but I saw that it was actually going to be possible and that I could, you know, thanks to technology, thanks to the way that the internet has evolved and developed, I could self-publish. I didn't have to wait for someone like an outer authority to approve of me, like right. God, and say, yes, I want to publish your book and I want to pay you for doing it, you know? So that's that was a great freedom for me that I could self-publish. Um, but before that book came out, I, I had a dream, and um, in the dream, it was 2011, in the dream I was told that I had to write a book about the spiritual history of London using the underground as my entry point. The underground meaning the, the metro, the tube, the subway. The tube, okay Yeah. okay, um, yeah. And, um, and I, it, this, this came in a dream, and I, and in the dream I said, yeah, yeah, I must, I must write that down, and I didn't. And uh, the next day I was, I was in, I remember I was in Austria, I was doing my work as a, I was doing my work in marketing, I used to market English language courses in Austrian school. So I was about my business doing my work. And I got a reminder in broad daylight as well, remember that dream, you're supposed to be writing a book about the London underground and about the history and using the entry, the entry point as the tube stations. So then um, a few days later, I was back at home in England, and then I, had, I went into meditation on this book. And in the meditation, what was uh, revealed to me was that um, Sir Christopher Wren, who designed St. Paul's Cathedral, believed that at the time of the second coming of Jesus, that Jesus would not return to the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem, but he would return to he would return to London. He would come to St Paul's Cathedral. <laughs> so, Sir so, so Christopher Wren designed St Paul's Cathedral using the sacred geometry that had been used to design and build the King, the the Solomon, sorry, the Temple of Solomon in in Jerusalem. And the way that he designed this cathedral was that the because of the sacred geometry, the very vibration of energy when you're in that cathedral is already uplifting. It will take you to a new place in consciousness, which mm-hmm. is. Fabulous, so visionary, so amazing. And then uh, based on the um, chapter, the chapters in uh, Revelations about the new Jerusalem, um, I realized that the 12 um, city gates of the new Jerusalem would become 12 tube stations. So I chose tube stations with a very dark history underneath. And I wrote about the dark history and all the pain and all the suffering that had occurred underneath the earth in London. And then at the end of each chapter, I wrote a prayer to cleanse and heal and restore the light to those areas. And I I was told to publish the book before the 2012 Olympics in London, because that would be a time when all the tribes and all the nations would gather in London without any political agenda. It's really about sport and about enjoying and sharing and celebrating the human spirit and the human achievement. So the book came out a few days before the actual Olympics. So I fulfilled that divine commission. And, um, but that was my first book that actually was uh, unleashed into the universe. And soon after, uh, my publicist reminded me that there was going to be a 150th anniversary of the London Tube. And so she asked me if I wanted to be on the radio, and I, I got to be on BBC Four talking about my book. And so yeah, lovely. It was really wonderfully received. And then uh, later that year I decided I was going to go ahead and publish The Misadventures of an Irreverent Reverend. And I got so much confidence after publishing the book about Divine uh, Down Dirty and Divine. I thought well why not? Why not have two books in one year? So right. the manuscript had already been written and then I just then I just uh, made sure that it got published before the end of that year. So yeah, I think um the feedback that I've had is lovely. People really enjoy my writing style and they really enjoy my honesty as well because I don't um I don't pretend to be holier than thou, you know. I, I I'm I show myself as a human being also struggling sometimes, questioning a lot and wanting to really develop my own inner relationship and have the best life I can have. So that's what it's you know, that's what I'm here for, that's what it's about. It's not about trying to tell people how to live their lives. Everyone has to discover their own way. Um, so that was 2012. And then um, the book on God and Sex, as I mentioned, it just it was really, it became clear that it was needing to be written in uh, last year, so 2017, August, that's when I knew this book is something that people really want because they really loved my talk and they wanted me to carry on talking longer, but I only had about 20 minutes on the stage. so. Yeah. There was such a like a hunger literally for more about this liberating these liberating ideas because people have been so trammeled and trapped for so long around the area of sex
1: right, and so now that brings us up to you know let's just say this last year. And so what would you say has been your message? What, like, what is the one thing if for right now, we're about halfway through our interview, what would be the one thing you wish people would take away? Like, if if you had to try and boil it down, what's the one thing you wish people when they say, okay, Reverend Stephanie Clark, this is her message?
0: Oh, okay. Let me think. Um, well, I want people to know that God wants you to have sex, that you were designed to have sex, and that you were designed to enjoy sex, Uh and that there is no punishing God up in the sky who's gonna clobber you for having sex or enjoying sex. Um, if you want to have sex with someone that you're not married to, um. I know that that's exciting, but rather tell your partner, be honest, be upfront. If you want to um, have sex with people who, are, who you're not married to or, or who you're not in a committed relationship with. Um, I'm, so I want to say that God wants you to have sex, but I also want to say that um, it's your responsibility when you have sex. So you need to be responsible when you're having sex so that other people don't get damaged or hurt. Um, and that's what else? That the, um, the the way that people worshipped and honoured the goddess before the patriarchal mythology started uh, included a lot of um, worshipping of sexuality and fertility.
1: Mm-hmm. The,
0: the ancient people knew that the land had to be fertile, women had to be fertile in order for the species to not only propagate itself, but also for everyone to get fed. So they thought that this creative energy of sex was a wonderful thing, obviously a life-giving force, that they were meant to honour and worship. And that all changed around with Christianity, and then suddenly sexuality became something that was the cause of death and mortality and sin and shame from the Adam and Eve story. So the message then to the people listening is that um, the – way that we've been taught to view sex has been part of a patriarchal agenda to keep men on top, literally. And once you understand that it's, it's a patriarchal agenda, it's not the absolute truth, there's a massive freedom there to really enjoy exploring, discovering, um, having pleasure, having fun, and without the trappings of sin and shame and guilt.
1: And so we are going to continue speaking more, and I do have a few questions. And we're going to go back now in time, and we're going to talk about the change, the crossover between the divine feminine and the uh, the patriarchal structure, as you've laid out. And we will get to that on the other side of the break. You are listening to Illuminate the Shadowlands podcast. We're back on Illuminate the Shadowlands podcast. I am Jay Michael, and we are here with Reverend Stephanie Clark. You can find her on Facebook at Rev. Stephanie Clark. And I do want to make sure I point out to everybody that Stephanie is spelled S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, which is not always the case with every single spelling, but that it is Rev. R-E-V-S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E. Clark, and Clark has an E at the end, so it's C-L-A-R-K-E. I don't know what it is with the British and having extra E's lying around, but (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) always these E's throwing us off. But so Facebook, Rev Stephanie Clark, and also TimelessTransitions.net and so we're going to go back in time and discuss (coughs) the crossover because Um, in my opinion, I've always looked at, when you look at the different major, uh, religions prior to, say, the Judeo-Christian concept, I always, there's a pair. It's, rather than worshipping the divine feminine, I always feel like you see there's a pair. There's a male and there's a female. The Sumerians, with Anu and Ki, who are either brother and sister, or however they came about, you need the sky, you need the earth. Without the two of them, nothing exists. The, like the Egyptians being the most obvious because there's four elements. Uh, the, like the Egyptians being the most obvious because there's four elements according to them, and there's a male element, there's a female element, a the counterpart. There's four elements, and that means there has to be eight gods because there's a male and a female. Mm-hmm. I guess there is a tomb who's technically both at the same time, both male and female. He has a male aspect and then there's a female aspect, but it seems to me there's a lot more of a male and a female, and then of course, the two come together, whether it be for agricultural reasons, they come together and there's rain and dew and whatnot so and when I look in the past, I tend to see a lot more of a coupling of the male and female, and I feel like over time that coupling has been split. But I don't necessarily feel like it was specifically, with exception of a few religions that was was specifically feminine, was the divine until maybe more of the it was a little maybe a little more European of an idea as the Europeans started to come about. But so tell me what you think about that, about the f- divine feminine couplings, you know, when, when the transitions happened.
0: I heard divine feminine coupling,
1: that's all. And when the transition, either from one to the yeah. other, or okay. when that happened. We, you know, in history, what are we talking yeah. about?
0: Yeah, no, thank you for that question, because that was really something I was so curious about. And part of the reason that I felt prompted to write the book Like, how did that happen? How did we start with either the worship of a female goddess on her own or, as you mentioned, the pairs of gods and goddesses, and how did we end up then with one male god in the heavens? Like, how could that happen? So that that was the uh, key part of my research. So what I discovered was that um, pre History, So pre-written history, which pretty much started um, the oldest religion is the Sumerian religion to be recorded. So that's 3,500 BCE. And Mm -hmm. the Egyptian religion at the other end of the Fertile Crescent was approximately the same time. Mm -hmm. So before that, uh, there is nothing written. So we don't know from written records what kind of worship the people practiced before that time. But archaeological evidence has shown us that there were goddess figures, figures in um, ancient sites that were inhabited by Celts and P- Paleolithic and Neolithic people. So the uh, one that interests me particularly because I worked in Austria is the, she's called Venus of Willendorf, uh-huh. and she's dated at 28,000 BCE. And then there's the sit- seated goddess of Katalhöyük in uh, t- in Turkey, and she's dated at 6,000 BCE. Uh-huh. So all across Europe and the ancient Near East, these goddess figurines have been found, and they're typically alone. It's not like they have a male partner with them. Mm-hmm. Um, although I was in the um, I was in the Isis temple in Mainz in Germany, and there was a I remember in one of the showcases there was a a figure of a male and a female standing up and having sex. But I think that was probably something that was used as a charm, like if people went to the temple wanting to have a partner, that, that they would have a, a clay doll made in, the, in the, that shape so that it would be like a charm for them. Um, so, so And then also a god, Yahweh, uh, is, it's believed now had a wife, her name was Asherah. And Asherah was the female goddess who was in Canaan at the time before the Hebrews came with their one god, Yahweh, and started destroying all the goddess shrines and temples. So in archaeological findings, it has been discovered that there was a a a clay jar with an inscription on it, and it was a petition for a blessing to to God and his Asherah. So clearly Yahweh, God, and God God had a a female um, partner as well. But then the Hebrews more and more (laughs) wanted to establish a monotheistic religion, began to destroy the evidence of a female partner for God. So my understanding of how this whole thing evolved is that in um, 5,000, no, so 5,000 years ago, 3,000 BCE approximately, um, the, there was an invasion of Europe and the ancient Near East from the, the Southern Caucasus area. So, so what today would be Georgia and Southern Russia. And the people who invaded are called the Kurgan people, or the Indo-Europeans, and they came on horseback, and they were which the um, Native Europeans and ancient Near East people didn't have. They had horses for working in the fields, but it wasn't like they were a military people with the rode on horseback into war. So these people that came from put the, this, this area south of Russia, they were warlike and they had a male god. They had a male god who was a god of thunder, a god of volcanoes, like a very loud, aggressive male god. And so they occupied the territory of Europe and the ancient Near East and gradually infiltrated. So whereas before the goddess was worshipped and the goddess alone, because the ancient people didn't understand about the male role in the fertilization of an egg. So they just saw that women got pregnant and they assumed that women were self-fertilizing that they that the blood in the woman's womb coagulated and became an, an embryo and then a baby. And then they assumed also that if a woman creates a child, then it must be a great mother that created our planet. So in the womb of the great mother who created our planet, the blood coagulated, and from that she birthed a planet. And
1: when was this? So they
0: didn't understand. Was- when was this? We're talking thousands of years BCE.
1: Right. I'm just, I'm asking only because, um, only because again, I feel like the older you look and I, I agree with the concept of like the God of thunder and all that. It's just that I tend to feel that there was a lot more like in the past, the the earth was the goddess and the sky was the God. And of course the dew, which represents semen. Rains down and fertilizes so if the oldest the very oldest religions we have were using semen and rain interchangeably Um, it does feel like they had an idea of it, mm-hmm. but Nessus even mm-hmm. is is Archaic as it might be Um, and even mm-hmm. that the god of thunder actually makes sense to me again Because if you believe the sky is God and up there in the sky, but what do you hear thunder and lightning? It makes sense that God would be allowed bombastic mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. up there but mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so again do you think that i mean because in my opinion if i were to when i look at it i feel like it was at first together and then somebody separated. sorry i'm missing it. everything now okay
0: you said in my opinion and, and then it i missed it the feels rest
1: like at first again they were together and then they got separated and the feminine i'm became. missing everything First, Sorry, I missed all of that. At first, the two genders were together, and then the female got separated out, and first became a goddess, and then, of yeah. course, got dismissed sometime later.
0: Right. So, yeah, let me just speak a little bit about how I think that happened. And again, right. it's it's what I think, and mm-hmm. um, I think Merlin Stone wrote wonderful work around that stuff when God was a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, so. So gradually these Kurgan people infiltrated and occupied the territory, and then what happened was, instead of there being a goddess in the heavens, Mm -hmm. uh, the goddess then got a male consort, so there was a man in the heavens with the goddess, and then suddenly the man was the leader, Mm -hmm. and the goddess became his consort, so so there's a change in the power structure. After that, it was the man, the male god, on his own, and the goddess was dismissed completely.
1: All right. And so, yes, with that, we are going to continue on the other side of this break. Our guest is Reverend Stephanie Clark. Reverend Stephanie Clark. Timelesstransitions.net is where you can find her she blogs regularly from what i can tell because she has a lot of information she's a guest speaker she writes she's all over the place these days going from canada to south africa and you will find out more on the other side of this break stay tuned Back on Illuminate the Shadowlands podcast with the Christian Nomad. I am that Christian Nomad, known on Twitter as the Nomad Christian, Nomad Christian on Twitter. You can find our guest, Reverend Stephanie Clark, at uh, timelesstransitions.net and on Facebook at Rev Stephanie Clark, and that is R E V S T E P H A N I E. Clark is spelled C-L-A-R-K-E, Clark. So Rev. Stephanie Clark on Facebook. Uh, We had just spoken about going back into history as far back as we can look and kind of the idea of the feminine, of male and female, female with a consort, male with a consort. Now let's move into the Judeo-Christian area, kind of later in the Judeo and more towards the Christian era. And kind of discuss you know what you think of you know the Christian mindset or how it has contributed to the system that that we're we've been addressing.
0: yeah, no thanks for that question. Uh, so obviously, Genesis has been the major cause of most of our problems around sexuality um, the I believe that the Hebrew scribes, they were writing in 1000 BC and 600 BC, Mm -hmm. they uh, had an agenda to have a male God, uh, one male God. And I believe that the story of Adam and Eve comes from a much older mythology, probably a Sumerian myth or a Babylonian myth. And I believe that Eve was actually a sex priestess and Adam was her consort. Okay. Based on the fact that the, the goddess religions were still around in, in the times of early Christianity. It was only in the late 4th century that Emperor Theodosius started to persecute the so-called pagan religions. And pagan just means of the earth or of the countryside. So it doesn't mean demonic right. or he, or whatever. It doesn't right. mean demonic. The catch-all for anything so, non-Judeo-Christian. Um, Emperor, uh, sorry, yeah, Emperor Constantine made Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. and then his successor Theodosius made sure that the pagans were persecuted, burnt at the stake, whatever. So um, right after Jesus' death, we know that the Gospels weren't even written until much later. And then later still, towards the end of the 4th century, there was a man born in North Africa called Augustine. Mm-hmm. And most people know him as Saint Augustine, right? But Augustine was born to a pagan dad and a very strongly Catholic mother. Mm-hmm. And he had a mistress. he had a son. He was very sexually active, but he believed that he could that because he couldn't control his penis, his penis must be of the devil. he He realized I can. Tell my arm to go up, and my arm goes up, and I can tell my arm to go down and my arm goes down, but when I tell my penis to do go up or go down, it does the opposite thing. <laughs> so he made it up completely. He made it up that his genital organs were devil spawn, and he also made it up that um the Adam and Eve story was about sexual sin, which it wasn't as far as I'm concerned, but um, that's how he made it up, and that's how he managed to convince. All of the church fathers, and so that then became doctrine in our church, mytho- in our church mythology, I'm going to call it mythology, that um, sex is something simple and only appropriate between married people. So Augustine was, um, he was, as I said, sexually active, but then he had a transformational experience after which he didn't want to have sex anymore, and he became um, a monk, And from that time on, that's when he began his writing about the fact that sex is something sinful. So the sin is not sex as such, it's the temptation. It's the weak-willed nature of the human being that wants to indulge in things that are not heavenly or that are of the devil, something sinful. Um, So he said every child, therefore, who's born is born of this sexual relationship between a male and a female, so every child Is born in sin, and that's why baptism got introduced. So rather than baptism being, let's bless this new baby in our community, it becomes, let's quickly sprinkle water and pray over this kid so that if the kid dies in early infancy, it's not going to go to hell. That's the whole purpose behind baptism.
1: Have you read a lot of Augustine? uh, Just with Augustine, because I've read a lot on Augustine uh, in my journey, um, and I agree with everything you've said is uh, accurate about him and especially i mean he's there's a reason why he was a lush you know he's the currently he's the um patron saint of beer and you know alcoholics and i think two other things like carpentry and, and bees or something crazy but uh um if the you read i feel like if you read the the mass of his work he felt like the body in general the flesh in general was just evil Cause he talks a lot about hell as being like the refiner's fire and it literally, you go to hell because it licks clean that the sin, you know, like, like, like silver having the impurities burnt off of it. So I feel like Augustine, he's an, I almost feel like in some way, like I said, you're right. I feel like he's an easy target though, for a lot of vitriol because his views were so extreme because he himself was such an extreme character. Um, mm. but I do want to, I want to point out, I want to go back to the concept of Genesis because that's a point of contention for me too, because I don't believe a honest reading, whether in Hebrew, which I do read, I do speak and read Hebrew or in English or Latin either that Genesis account. I don't believe there's anything sexual in it. I actually believe I almost feel like when I read it, the hebrew scribes went out of their way to cleanse it from sex like if it was based upon a prior sexual you know mythology i almost feel like they cleansed it sorry, from the sorry.
0: sex sorry sorry i'm missing it this is such an interesting question and i'm no. missing it all oh Shame. that's okay i'm sorry so i think you've what you is made the point a that a second, the... but
1: if like i said yeah, if okay. If it was about sex, I feel like the Jewish scribes went out of their way to cleanse it of all sexual connotation.
0: They there went was out only of their the way. Like
1: to cleanse it from sex. Yeah. To like strip the sex out of it. Because if you notice, the first time they even realize they're naked is after sin.
0: Yeah. In yeah, yeah, the yeah. Jewish yeah, mindset.
1: It's... Unless. The bit- you're a Kabbalist. The Kabbalah Judaism, they believe in Lilith and all of that. But the mainline Judaism, even, you know, 1000 BC, seemed like they, like I said, they tried to strip anything sexual out of it. So, and again, I think that's an honest reading. I think people read it with an agenda and try to put things in there. But how, with that occurrence how do you like you know think the genesis account should be read i mean as it as it we read it today as we read it today well like if you were to open up a bible which i have and in the beginning god created and then you have Mm. adam and eve walking around and she takes a bite of a fruit (laughs) Mm yeah you know like what do you think that mythology points to what do you think that story points to
0: well, I think it's a mixture of a number of different stories. Mm-hmm. Um one of them is uh I think it's Inanna in Itu. Yeah. Inanna wanted the secret of knowledge in mm-hmm. Sumerian um mythology. And so she convinced I think it was her brother Itu to or, to take her into the underworld where she mm-hmm. where she discovered the secrets of sex by biting into the apple. The apple right. gave her the knowledge of sex. Right. Um and then there's another um uh, another with another um, myth with the goddess in the goddess religions so every year the high priestess who reckon, who re- represented the goddess on earth she would take a ritual bath to cleanse herself of the past and to reestablish her virginity right and then the potential male consorts would come into the room and watch her bath and the one that got the erection first was considered to be the perfect husband for her and he would then become king
1: right
0: so <laughs> if eve was a sex priestess and she offered adam the fruit the the fruit of sexual knowledge mm-hmm. and he instantly got an erection he would then become her consort and they would make love and create be either the symbol of fertility for the earth so it was all the mythologies the way they were before the hebrew scribes got a hold of them was all about the uh, fertility fecundity Propagating the species. Enjoying sex. Enjoying
1: creativity. Okay. And so we have another break coming up. So on the other side, uh, we're going to go a little bit more into, again, the concepts of where you think it went wrong. And we'll finish up with how you think it can go right. Our guest is reverend stephanie clark you can find her at timelesstransitions.net, and she also has an author page on amazon.com where you can find all of her books her most recent book the sex goddess debunking the mythology of god and sex is available on kindle now stay tuned And we're back on Illuminate, the Shadowlands podcast with the Christian Nomad. I am that Christian Nomad. You can find me on Twitter at Nomad Christian. And we have our guest, Reverend Stephanie Clark, which can be found on Facebook at Rev. Stephanie Clark and on TimelessTransitions.net. She also blogs uh, pretty regularly. Uh, A lot of interesting material in her blogs from the couple that I've read so far, and I'm going to continue. And likewise, her newest book, The Sex Goddess, Debunking the Mythology of God and Sex, is available on Kindle. Um, Is that available on paperback? I haven't found yet. Can you order that? Yes, it is now. And
0: yeah, I'll show you the cover. This is the Kindle, the old Kindle cover. Okay. But I I called it uh, debunking the mythology debonking, of God and yeah. sex, and that's a play on words which only Brits and South Africans and Australians understand because bonking is a is a slang word for sex.
1: Yeah, we have. But an Americans American don't too.
0: understand that, so they don't think it's funny. And I changed really? the title and I completely changed the cover as well. And it's now available on paperback and on Kindle.
1: Wow, here where I grew up, bonking was all the time used as a slang. Yeah. So maybe that's oh, just my area. Oh, so were- yeah. But um okay. I am I'm gonna if I buy the book, I'm gonna buy it in paperback. I don't like reading on the Kindle. it hurts my eyes. But uh so yeah, I if I buy it, I'm gonna do it in paperback. I love books. Um have a have a way too many. But um Me too. so the first thing I just want to uh again get into and we don't have a lot of time left in this segment and I'm going to invite you back at a later date to continue because you have a lot of information and a lot of interesting things to say and I am interested in them. But I want to try
0: and get to, again, sort of, prior to the time of Augustine, what is your take
1: on the fact that it feels like a lot of the goddess religions and fertility...
0: Sorry. Sorry... (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I missed it. Uh, what is your take on the fact
1: that a lot of the goddess f- fertility religions, especially Canaanite based, that
0: a lot of the goddess the goddess based religions,
1: yeah, and especially in Canaanite religions and it, particularly Astaroth, there was a lot of child sacrifice going on. There was, I mean, pretty much all of them. They had you would at some point there was a virgin having sex, having a baby, and on spring they were killing the baby. Pretty consistent. And, like, I have a Jewish friend who says that's the reason why they were told to destroy Astaroth, was to stop the, the child sacrifice. Um, so, that's essentially kind of making, that's the reason they cleansed that part of the Canaanite concept. Um, what is your aspect to that? Mm-hmm. Because I understand many They cleansed to- that
0: part of the Canaanite concept. Sorry, I'm missing that's, bits that's, of your question, and right. it's really interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, they again they're trying to cleanse the child sacrifice from the area. But in that concept, I understand men have being warlike, but it feels to me that a lot of the feminine based religions had a lot of child sacrifice and stuff. What is your what do you think the connection there is? Because that feels like a weird thing, because people blame men for violence. But I feel like the the ones that were had female goddesses are the ones that had the child sacrifice. The, what do you think? No,
0: that's very just. Yeah, no, it's disturbing to me too. Because of course I want to believe that in the matristic cultures that people lived in harmony and there was equality and right. respect and all of that. And yeah, when you read in the Bible, you see that this this is happening. That there were well, there were child sacrifices in the ancient pagan religions. And I can get it that uh, what your friend said, that the the Hebrew people wanted to cleanse uh, of that and not have that as barbaric, of course. Right. Um, There seems to be, so I think it's a misinterpretation of uh, what's required. This is really deep. I hope we've got time to cover it.
1: Just keep going. If we run over, we'll run over.
0: Okay, that's good. Thank you. (laughs) So with Isis and Osiris, you know, know, Isis, Osiris was killed by his so-called evil brother Seth and chopped Mm -hmm. into pieces and Isis flew around as a bird and found the pieces and put him together and was able to arouse his penis and have sex with him and conceive the baby Horus.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And then um, Isis... As far as I'm aware, introduced the whole idea of the eternal life or a life beyond death, and Isis, uh, Osiris became the king of the underworld, and it was understood that he had to be sacrificed in order for the crops to grow, for the fields to be fertile. So mm-hmm. There was something about his the sacrificing of a human that allowed the whole earth to be replenished and restored. Right. Um and i i believe that myth then was transferred to jesus and but also distorted so in the same way that osiris was sacrificed i believe that in the old um in the old goddess religions i think i believe it was on the spring equinox that makes sense to me that on the spring equinox the high priestess of the temple would have sex with the local so called shepherd king so the a local man had been chosen from amongst the community members, and he would have sex with the goddess on the spring equinox. The goddess, or the sorry, the high priestess would conceive a child, mm-hmm. and that would then guarantee the fertility of the crops that year, and the man would be slaughtered because it was believed that he had to be slaughtered in order for the spilling of his blood to then be the fertile agency that would help with the with the fields and the crops. Right. Um, and then I so I believe that that mythology or that understanding was carried over to Jesus, and so Jesus also had to be sacrificed, and the mm-hmm. spilling of his blood wouldn't save the earth; it would save people's souls. I mean, that was a right. massive leap from saving <laughs> saving the agricultural world to saving the, the the souls of of humans. And the reason that Jesus had to save humans was because they had been contaminated by the sin of sex. That's the only reason that we need redemption. Right? That's how the Christian mythology has interpreted it. I don't believe if right. Jesus existed, if he was crucified, if he rose again, if all of those things were true, he didn't do it to save us from the sin of sex.
1: No, I agree with he that. Did it
0: to prove that there is, he did it to prove there's no such thing as death. He did it to prove that who we are we are immortal eternal beings and there is there's no such thing as death which is the primal human fear so if we can get past the primal human fear from from his example we can have a life of freedom where we can just enjoy and express and create and not be dominated by a fear of death which then translates to a fear of being uncomfortable so right. <laughs> a lot of us live just in the fear of being uncomfortable right um yeah, so I think I'll leave it there because I don't know. I can't remember the question anymore. Yeah. I just got off.
1: No, <laughs> that answered yeah. it pretty well. You, I'm going to give you the floor. We have about four minutes. Take okay. your time. I'm going to admit acknowledge that I can't remember what you said you wanted to end it on.
0: I asked uh, to speak a little bit about how Women had become second-class citizens right, as a result of class. the Adam and Eve story.
1: Right. You know. Yeah. So show us the connect. Yeah, the connection so, between how that yeah. works and how they become you know, yeah. subordinate.
0: So from the Adam and Eve story, Eve was then considered the wicked temptress and the cause for man, literally man's downfall. We're not talking about humanity's downfall, except if man is the is the only real human, and women are just an afterthought, then yeah, we're talking about human downfall. Um, so she's the cause of man's fall from grace because she tempted him. He has no responsibility in the matter at all. He's not responsible for his erection. He's not responsible for what he did with that erection. <laughs> all right. She's the one that's totally responsible for his uh, defeat and she's responsible for the fact that humans are now mortal because if she hadn't done what she did, we would be still living in this immortal paradise of the Garden of Eden. That's that's what's suggested through the Adam and Eve story. So as a result of her sinful nature, so-called, Eve has been vilified and all women have been considered to be the daughters of Eve. So all women are naturally sinful because they have a sexual nature and they can tempt men into sex which is bad for a man's soul that's that's the mythology so then mary comes along and she has to cleanse all that so mary has to be a virgin because if right. jesus is born of a woman who's not a virgin how can he save us from sex from the sexual sin that stains us okay so i'm gonna leave it there on a cliffhanger <laughs> right
1: and so <laughs> and talking to talking there it. you have it when we come back uh to interview in the future you have the cliffhanger you know mary jesus where does that leave us i'm going to come back and wrap up the show on the other side with a few of my thoughts but until then i just want to thank our guest uh reverend stephanie clark you can get her at timelesstransitions.net. thank you so much for showing up
0: thank you jay
1: Clark for being with us today. We will have her back soon. Her website one last time was TimelessTransitions.net. TimelessTransitions.net. Obviously, for anybody who knows me or anybody who's listened or read any of my stuff, she and I do not agree on almost anything. I know may not be clear from our conversation because I don't really challenge much but that's because the purpose of today was to find out what she knows I want to know what she knows I can't disagree with somebody if I don't know what they know or what they think and therefore I'm here to listen and find out what she thinks so I did that and she told us and she was very gracious to come on the program and do such a thing and I, I look forward to the next time because I think we need to listen. We need to listen to each other. We need. I, I think most of the the issues that we have, and what I believe and she believes and whatnot, could be summed up in saying that I believe it's a dis a misunderstanding, and she's using that misunderstanding in the way that pretty much everybody has used that misunderstanding. And that's that's too bad. Because I think if you read the Bible with an open mind, it, it just makes so much sense. If you read it just and see what it says, it makes so much sense. I mean, we're talking about the idea of sex and the idea of the things that are going on. I mean, yes, people have used women and abused women for years and it's terrible and over a period of time there has been a subjugation of women into a role of of slavehood of of being bound and that's not the way it was ever intended it may even seem that way at times but remember the old testament is history it's saying how things were it's not saying how god wanted it to be What God wanted it to be is what God said he wanted it to be. Things like love each other, care for each other, be in subjection to each other, have sex with each other. Sex is a very important part of marriage. Sex is a very important part, but I think it's because it comes along with the idea of being subject to the other. It's not sex because... The man demands it, and the woman has to give it. It's not even sex because she wants it, and he has to. It's sex because it helps bring you together, it helps the two of you get to know each other. Because if you are are paying attention and figuring her out, or she's paying attention and figuring you out, I have talked to couples that were together for almost thirty-five years. And the woman had no idea about his turn-ons or how, how to get him aroused or anything. Because she just saw it as something that she did once in a while for him. And yet she would get upset if he wasn't turned on whenever she wanted it. But she couldn't put herself in his place. And the problem I think we have here, again, is listening to the other person, paying attention to the other person subjugation, we think of that as a terrible word. It's not that bad, really. We pervert it, but it is not that bad. Paul makes it pretty clear throughout his writings in the New Testament that while she was deceived, that's not the major sin. Adam is at fault for the sin because God told him personally not to do it. And even consider the fact that it was because man is sinful that the Savior of the world had to come through a woman without the use of a man. That way, Christ could be perfect because he's a new creation. So, while it couldn't be from a man, it could be through a woman. So you could actually make the connection that through a man, sin entered, and through a woman, we got the chance at redemption. People simply call childbearing a punishment, and yet she actually saved herself and humanity through it. And her only real punishment is that she's not allowed to be at the top of the family hierarchical structure, which, if you think about it, is really only put in place because people work best in structure. But that has nothing to do with her being second class. Yes, the structure was created because since she was fooled, it's a hedge of protection. The husband is supposed to be a protection against the world, against sin, against evil. It's for your good. Look, go somebody sometime go read Genesis 38 with Judah and Tamar. I mean, Tamar went and played a whore. She slept with two of his boys. Now she plays a whore and Judah sleeps with her. And guess what? She is called more righteous than him. The whore was more righteous than the John. Because Judah was more than willing to take advantage of her on every level. Take advantage of her with her sons by not giving her, her the youngest to be a husband. Take advantage of her as a prostitute and just think that he can have sex with whoever he wants with. no, No obligation and just leave her to be. The problem is that Judah was treating Tamar as less than human. And therefore, Tamar, even if what she did was sinful, she was more righteous than Judah. Because Judah was wrong on every front. I want to look at the word subjugation for a second. It actually comes from the late Latin, which which is interesting because it's kind of like subjugatio. And therefore, it means sub, which means under. Jugum, which means jugular, it is a, it's a yoke for an oxen, a yoke for donkeys. Now you say, well, yeah, a yoke as in put under. Yeah, but it's something you're asked, you're told to do to yourself. Subjugate yourself. Christ said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's not telling you not to subjugate yourself to him. He's telling you to do it, but it's not that bad. And it's the same way. If you get into a relationship with a woman, subjugate yourself to her. It's okay. You're putting yourself under a yoke with her because the two of you are pulling together. You're not supposed to be pulling two different directions. You're supposed to be pulling together. You plow the field, the two of you, side by side, person by person. It's not a bad thing. Oh, subjugate yourself. Yes, it's okay. Subjugate yourself men subjugate yourself to your wives and then what she wants figure her out what are her turn-ons what are her turn-offs what is she like give up some of what you want in your personal comfort for her and women same way if if it is over sex give him some sex big deal and if he's doing the right things he'll return the favor it's the way put yourself under him let his umbrella be over you work next to him side by side, get under the yoke together, the two of you pulling in the same direction and don't be a jackass, don't be a donkey don't be unequally yoked you can't put an ox and a donkey under the same yoke, you have to have two of the same kind and by that I mean don't be mixing religions because you have to have the same life values we're talking about something as important as, as giving yourself to another person you should expect a relationship you should expect a life together you should expect that they're going to subjugate themselves just as much than you are because if it's not 50 50 it's a hundred percent on both sides it's not one plus one it's one times one this isn't just basic math one times one equals one you need to work together plow the field together be under the same yoke I believe that yoke is Jesus Christ. His yoke is easy. God doesn't want you to not have sex. He wants you to have sex. Enjoy sex. Do it. Figure it out. There's no limits to it. I'm telling you, anybody who wants to put a limit on sex, the only limit is it's supposed to be between you and your spouse. Find a spouse and do it. It's okay. But subjugate yourself. It's not a dirty word. Everything sex is the dirty word. No, subjugate is the dirty word. Oh, be in subjection. Yes, it's okay. It's okay. Look forward to it. Make a game out of it. We'll have fun. Learn about each other. Live with each other with all knowledge. Love as an emotion will fade. It's not always fun to be in a relationship with somebody, but you can make it work if you treat love like a verb and subjugate yourself. It's an action. It's okay to do so. It's not a dirty word. I want everybody, within the sound of my voice, to have a fulfilling and exciting sex life with the person you choose to marry. God does too, but he also wants you to live well. And that's in the structure he created. The thing is, is that if we're paying attention, even in something like Titus 3, which gets a bad rap, Paul tells us that you are to be sensible, sober-minded, live together with all knowledge and love each other until next time god bless you all thank you for joining us come again